Well, good morning. Great that you came, take the time to carve out to actually be in the presence of God. It's uh, really appreciate you making the effort to come along. Hope that uh, you draw something out of today's message. Of course, we're in right now the Book of Romans. We've been uh, launched that new series last week. It was Matt who kicked that off with Romans chapter one, and this week I'll continue that on. And the the theme of this uh, series is the big questions. And today, as I say, drawing from Romans, and in fact, when you look at um, the Apostle Peter, who was obviously a contemporary of Paul, he said of Paul's writings, he said, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. And you know, that is actually true, and it's probably no more true than the book of Romans. But of course, if we put in the work, if we actually put in the effort to try to understand and apply this wonderful book to our own lives, then uh, the rewards are there for us as we dig into the word. But as we come today, we're going to, as I say, come to Romans chapter 4. And the big question we'll be probing today is, what does God want? What does God really want? We know God asks a lot of us at times. And, uh, you know, I'm one who's read the Bible dozens of times and I keep coming back to that question. Yes, God, but what is it? What is it that you truly want? From me, what does he want from you? I mean, we can go to Romans 12, for example, and it says, yeah, in the light of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your acceptable act of worship, etc." So we might deduce from that that, hey, well, sacrifice then is obviously important, but is it the most important? Is, it that, is that what God really wants? Because if you go back to, to uh, the story of Saul and, and, and Samuel confronts him and says, you know what? To obey is better than sacrifice. So we might say, well, okay, sacrifice is important. Maybe... Maybe obedience is even more important than sacrifice. But then you think of the words of Jesus and Jesus said, you know, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So maybe love trumps obedience. Maybe, you know, he says you're going to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. Clearly, that's important. I mean, he said it was the first and greatest commandment, right? So clearly it's important. But then again, we know that worship's important and worship is an expression of our love for God. So on and on it goes, we could keep peeling back the layers of the onion. And and is it any wonder we really struggle to know, God, what is it that you really, really want from me? And I want to suggest today that it's actually not something that God actually calls us to do, as it is something that God actually asks us to have. And that something is faith. It's faith. In fact, in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, it actually says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that suggests to me that everything else and anything else that we do for God, if it's not done out of a position of faith, then it's somewhat worthless or it's irrelevant because it's actually impossible. You can't even begin to please God unless we do it from a position of faith. In fact, faith is the starting point from where we even begin our journey with God. Remember Ephesians chapter two and verse eight, and it says this, for it is by grace you've been saved, by what? Through faith, through faith. And not only that, but our ongoing relationship with God is sustained by faith. It says, for we live or we walk by faith, not by sight. So not only do we begin our journey with God, but we continue our walk with God in faith. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 7. So why is it that faith is therefore so important? 
And it really is that this whole idea of within faith is wrapped up in this, this notion of trust. See, like a little child that simply trusts their, their parent, their grandparent, whatever, uh, you know, to love, protect, to nurture, to care, to provide. That's how God wants us to look to him, to actually look to him for a, to, as trusting like a child would to a, to a parent. And therein lies the very essence of why faith is important because ultimately God wants to live as our father and he wants us above all else to be his children. You know, the thing about faith is you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't hear it, you can't smell it, you can't know it with your natural senses. And so in that sense, it's hard to define. What is it? I mean, we know it when we see it. In fact, in Hebrews, it actually says that faith is the substance of things unseen, the evidence of things not yet um, that we cannot touch. And it's not quite right, but anyway, it's close enough. But, you know, it's that sense in which, you know, faith, we know it when we see it, but it's hard to describe it. But if it's, as I suggest, the thing that God wants from us first and foremost, then really it behoves us to actually seek to understand what is this thing we actually call faith. And as I say, just as children will look to a parent and you know, you've ever had a kid who's stuck on a piece of play equipment and, they, and you're underneath, you say, hey, let go, it's okay, I've got you. And what do they do? And in fear, they hold on and they don't trust you and we get a little disappointed, you know, with that. You know, and so it is that God calls us to, to let go and let God be God. And we need to actually learn not to panic, not to fear, but to trust in God who's able to save us. So as we come to the Bible today, you know, it has, as I say, much to say about faith. In fact, as we come to Romans 4, our passage for the day, we hear of Abraham, the story of Abraham, who's described in the book as the father of all who have faith. And in this chapter, Paul is recounting the story from Genesis 15, which we're going to take a little bit of time to look at in the book of Genesis. But in chapter 3, which precedes this chapter today, Paul's outlining, outlining all of the, um, the issue of being made righteous or made, uh, being justified through faith apart from the law. And in that sense, both Jew and Gentile alike can have that same standing before God. And then it goes on to speak about Abraham and it opens up chapter 4 with the question, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? And this is where we get to chapter 4 and verse 2. So let's read it together. It says, If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you just pause there for a moment, because you see in the original Greek, the, the word used here for the word justification, which is in that passage, being justified, not justified by works, but says it talks about him being made righteous. That same word, the chaos in the Greek actually is translated in one context as being justified or being declared just or, or acquitted, if you will, made right in right standing. And therefore, it is also translated as the word righteousness which means, as I say, put into right relationship. So when I talk about us being in relationship with God and being because he's our father, this, when we're made righteous, it's not something to do with being morally pure. We talk of a righteous person being someone who's upright in their, um, in their ethics and their morality, but, but this is something which God does inwardly. It's a work of grace and not by our own works. It says just... 
Abraham had nothing to say in terms of he's being made right because of works. It simply says Abraham believed God and it's this, it's his belief or his faith or his trust in God that was credited to him it's a, or imputed. It's, a, it's almost a technical word like from within accounting, basically gifted to him as righteousness. And as James 2.23, when reflecting on exactly the same passage from Genesis 15, says this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it says this, and he was called God's friend relationship this is what i'm talking about by faith this is the means by which we actually engage with god and without faith we know it's impossible to please god but with faith we're actually called god's friend called into that right relationship and of course through jesus christ the way has been made for us to enter into that relationship now it's been established and in ephesians chapter 3 verse 12 it says this in him that's jesus and through faith in him We may approach God with freedom and with confidence. You know, those words, freedom and confidence, they're words of relationship because we know that we're accepted in his beloved son. So getting back to Romans 4, let's read on from verse 4. It says, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. You know, there's a difference between us working and, and, and things being given to us as an obligation, as if we've been paid uh, for doing something. But in this case, Abraham just simply believes God, and in so doing, God credits that to him as righteousness. Now, it says that we, when it talks about us, you know, um, it says not to the one who works. Now, to the one who works, you know, wages are not credited as righteousness. It's not advocating that we'd be lazy. We don't do anything for God. In fact, quite the contrary we should be really diligent in our service to God and not because um, because we've been justified in Ephesians 2 again it says for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and is not of yourselves so the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast but then it goes on straight after that to say this for we are God's handiwork or his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God had prepared in advance for us to do the fact is we're not saved because of works we're saved by grace so we're not trying to live out some moral upright life in order to be accepted by God we have it already through faith by simply believing in the gift that God gave us in the Lord Jesus Christ so all these things I spoke of before about love and uh, sacrifice and obedience and worship All of those things are outworkings that start from the underpinnings of a position of faith. So let's consider Abraham, the man of faith, the one who I said is the father of all who have faith. Because I want to have a look at what his faith actually looked like. Because we have a lot to learn from someone who's been given that tag. So just before I go to Genesis 15 from where that scripture came, you might recall Genesis 12 when God had outlined to Abraham that he was going to bless him. He was going to give him a son who would be an heir, who would come from his own body. And he also said, and I'm going to give you a land, a land for you to inherit, a land for you to live in, a land to live in peace, a land that would be yours. And this is picking up on the pattern that's laid out in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, what we call the dominion mandate. God's original intention was for mankind, for humanity, to live in relationship with God. And right at the start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, speaking to Adam and Eve, God says this, God blessed them 
and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So that was God's original intention. Be fruitful and increase in number. In other words, the power to procreate, to multiply that fruitfulness. And in Abraham's case, it was the promise of a son that would become to him and what we might call God's seed given to him, essentially the promise of life out of death. And in Hebrews 11, it says of Abraham that his body was reckoned as good as dead, and yet he believed God for this son. And the second thing out of Genesis 1 and 28 is he says, fill the earth and subdue it. So the dominion mandate was not only to actually procreate and have children and, and, and that sort of thing, but it was also to have dominion over the earth that the blessing of living in the land, somewhere to live in peace and safety in the earth and subdue it and ultimately fulfilled in the, in the giving of the promised land to later generations that followed Abraham and his descendants. Because God ultimately wants a family. And faith is that prerequisite for establishing anything else that flows from that relationship. So let's look at Abraham's life. Well, the first thing we find in Genesis after Genesis 12, the same chapter, Genesis, this is what Abraham does. He packs up his family with Lot and he heads to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. Now, straight away, I mean, God's just told him that you're going to inherit the land and I'm going to give it to you. So what's he do? He leaves the very land that God tells him. So effectively, he's put under threat the very thing which God had told him. And then not only so, but he gives Sarai, his wife, to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is a symbol of evil. And now the seed, if you will, is under threat because it was through Sarai that the child was going to come that God had promised. So not only is now the seed, but also the land, this Genesis 1.28 stuff, has now got off to a bit of a wobbly start. Now this is the man of faith, remember. But we shouldn't worry because God's got it in hand. So he comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. See, after things had gone rather awry for Pharaoh, trying it on with Abraham's wife, he... Pharaoh basically ejects um, uh, Abraham and Sarai and their whole lot, their family to uh, go back to the place, back to the land. And it's right there where God comes and reminds Abraham once more, Genesis 13, that he's going to give the land to him. So let's, it's essentially God taking the initiative. In Genesis 13, let's read that together. It says, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, because that Lot had gone into another part of the land, Look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west, all the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So here's God coming once again, just reinforcing to Abraham the, the, the promise. And so what's the next thing Abraham does? We go to chapter 14. And we see these four kings come in from the surrounding nations and they conquer uh, the land around Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot is and Lot's taken captive. So what's Abraham do? The first thing he does, he gets a ragtag bag of 318 shepherds, not warring men, but he goes up against the might of four kings. Again, here's Abraham going out to fight. I mean, man, it was through Abraham, remember, the promise was going to come. And now he's putting that at risk. So Abraham could get killed, as I say, but... God delivers him because God's watching over his promise. God is faithful. Then we get to the next chapter, chapter 15. And this is the bit where it points back, where Romans 4 is pointing back to. And God reminds him again about the promise of his son. So let's read verse 1 in chapter 15. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great 
reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. I mean, again, where's Abraham's faith? What's he saying? Eliezer of Damascus? I mean, Damascus was somewhat at odds with uh, the nation of Israel. Even to this day, that whole nation of Syria is actually you know, quite, quite opposed to Israel. But Abraham's chosen wrong. He's thinking, you know, if not Eliezer, then a servant in my household. And God's saying, no, 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 that's not, not how it works. Let's read on from verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. He says, this man, this Eliezer, he will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And this is where that picks up in Romans 4. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So there it's in that verse, you know, it's this promise to bless Abraham and Abraham's seed. It's all, it's all, it's, and now Abraham's saying, ah, now, you know, finally, finally starts to get it. Finally starting to piece it together. This son is going to come from his own body, not this distant relative from another nation. So he's sorted out now around how the seed's going to play out, but what about the land? We get to Genesis 15 and verse 7. And this is, and this is what God says. He said to him, to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? This guy's struggling. He's struggling with doubt. He desperately wants to believe God, but he's just not sure. You know, I mean, can you relate to that? I certainly can. Many times when I've had doubt. But you know, doubt in and of itself is not necessarily wrong because when we doubt, there's a part of us which actually doesn't believe, but then again, there is also a part of us that does believe. And God says, I can work with that. You know, it's okay sometimes when we struggle because fear rises within us. We, do, we struggle to trust God. And, the, and, and you know, faith doesn't have to be actually perfect. You know, it's like, remember the guy whose son was having the seizures and he comes to Jesus and, and, he, and he say, he, Jesus tells him his son can be healed and he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Do you remember that guy? And, and what does Jesus do? You see, for this guy, part of him knew that Jesus could heal him. Another part was doubting, just wondering. But Jesus did, in fact, heal the boy, even in the midst of this man's doubt. Well, think about the disciples in the boat during the storm. You remember that? Jesus is asleep in the boat and the disciples are lying down there and they're basically packing themselves and as the storm lashes around them and and they cry out to Jesus and Jesus gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves and the the, the storm is calmed. And what does he say to the disciples after that? In Matthew's gospel, it actually says, you have little faith. You have little faith. But what did Jesus do? He did the miracle nonetheless. And what about in Mark's gospel of the same account, Jesus actually wasn't nearly as kind to them. He said, you have no faith. Zero. Did it stop God from performing a miracle? No. Because God is God and God will always be God. Whether we've got faith or whether we haven't. 
Or think about the mustard seed. You know, this is a story. We hear this parable of the mustard seed, you know, and Jesus said, you know, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll tell this, this, um, this mountain to tear itself up and be cast into the sea. And we get, all, you know, we get all heavy on ourselves because we think, oh man, I can't even believe God to heal a headache. You know, how can I, let alone get a mountain to throw itself into the sea. But you know, that, I reckon that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus was actually saying when we think like that. You know what I think Jesus was really saying? I think he was saying, you know what? Faith is not the issue. I'll tell you why. Because if you had just a mustard seed of faith, you could tell a mountain to throw itself into the water. That's not the issue, guys. Right? That's how I interpret what Jesus is saying. And so, because I've seen, and I'm no doubt you've seen, and it's been disappointing to see people who get condemnation heaped on them because you just don't have enough faith to believe you know and if you had to believe then something a different outcome might have been and we get on this guilt trip and oh I just don't have the faith and you know it was Charles Spurgeon who actually said you know faith is only as valid as the object in which you place that faith and so it's not the size of your faith it's not the veracity the strength of your faith that's not the issue if you had mustard seed of faith you can tell mountains to cast themselves into the sea that's not the point the point is you must trust in a god who is trustworthy you must have faith in a god who is faithful because he's the one who sustains it and it was Corrie ten boom who was credited with saying you know it's not great faith in god that you need it's simply faith in a great God. That's the point. God is trustworthy and we can trust him whether our faith be small or great. The fact is that we look to him. The faith that sustains a relationship with him. That's what matters. You know, if you've ever seen that show, The Ice Truckers, you've ever seen that on Discovery Channel, these guys that go up into the northern parts of Canada and they drive over these 30, 40 tonne rigs over the top of ice. And, uh, you know, they, it's incredible. They take all these gear up to the mines up in the north of the, the country. You know, and they might have been some of those guys on strike recently. Who knows? But anyway, they take these, these big rigs over the top of these frozen lakes and they can drive over those lakes with confidence. Yeah, I mean, a certain amount of faith, but they know that the thing in which they're driving will uphold that truck. And so they drive straight over the top of it and it upholds them. Because it's not their faith necessarily, but it's the actual thing that they're putting their faith in. That ice will hold them. I mean, conversely, imagine if you know, I decided I was going to take some massive leap of faith and step out onto ice that was an inch thick. And I decided, you know, yep, here we go. So no need to tie the rope to the waist. Or no, no, no issues whatsoever. Just launch on out, stay straight in it. Well, you watch as I step out onto that ice in massive faith and watch me sink. Not because my faith was weak. I had great faith. But I sunk because the thing I put my faith in was not worth putting my trust into. As I say, faith must be in an object and as much as that object is trustworthy, then it's something worth putting your trust in. You know, and faith, it must be placed in it. It's a bit like love. You know, imagine a teenage girl saying, uh, you know, I'm in love. And you say, uh-huh, right, so... Who are you in love with? Oh, nobody. I'm just in love. You know, uh, can you imagine that? It makes no sense, right? That's infatuation. That's not love. Love must be placed in someone or something, right? And, and faith's like that. And we put our faith in a faithful God. 
So let's go back to Abraham. So now we get to Genesis chapter 16. And we see that the promise of that seed is under threat once more. This time, Abraham's wife Sarai hatches this plan for Abraham to actually uh, take his, her servant girl, Hagar, who's an Egyptian, by the way, yet another enemy of Israel, to help God out a bit. See, wrong choice again. Despite this divine reassurance of chapter 15, which we just read before, now, Hagar, through Hagar, Ishmael's born, and, he, he, and they name him Ishmael, which means the Lord has heard. I reckon it's Abraham essentially saying, ha ha, God, finally, you've got it. You know, thank you, God, this is it. This is what you had in mind all along, isn't it? But then God comes to him again to straighten him up, Genesis 17. Let's read from verse 1. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, here he is again, God keeps showing up, right? I am God Almighty. And I reckon right there he's saying, you know what, Abram? Despite all your efforts, I really don't need your help. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. In other words, God, what God's saying is, you know what? What I said I'll do, I'll do. Stop stressing. Stop trying to help me out. Stop trying to get into the flesh. Stop trying to do things that I alone can do and will do. And so he reaffirms his promise again in the rest of that chapter and he changes Abram to, Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. And then we get on to verse 15 of chapter, 17 of, uh, chapter 17 of Genesis. It says, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai, but her name will be Sarah. And I'll bless her and I'll surely give you a son by her and I'll bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, the guy's wondering again, doubting, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, guess what? Oh, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. In other words, he's still trying to work out this plan that he's hatched by the flesh. He continued to struggle. He still didn't quite get, get it. And he laughs at God's suggestion. And later on, Sarai gets visited by these three angelic beings and she laughs at the prospect of it as well. But of course, God is the one who has the last laugh. As we read in Genesis 21 now, and this is where we get toward the pointy end. It says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, and he said, and the, and he, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Well, there you go. Finally, they got there. You know, because this whole story of Abraham is one of God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness in the face of a faith which was far from perfect. In spite of Abraham's struggles, his doubts, and even his best efforts to stuff it up. But one thing Abraham did do in all of that, even though he might have been struggling for the specific thing, as we might do from time to time, believing for a certain outcome, like you and I, Abraham just clung to God anyway. And that's the lesson we can take out of this, is that you know our faith, we might not be necessarily be able to believe for things all the time, but we can always believe God to be God. We can always put our trust in him. 
And I find it fascinating as we come back to Romans 4 and verse 19. It says this. Romans 4, this is why it's quite amusing. It says, without weakening in his faith, (laughs) this is Abraham, right? He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Well, fancy that. But how do we reconcile those two things? The fact that he seemed to struggle so much as we recount that, but then in Romans, looks back, it says, he didn't waver in his faith one bit. Because I think the thing that he didn't waver in was his trust in God. Yes, he struggled with the specific thing that God had asked him to, but he had faith in God himself. And that also tells me, as it's recorded here, what God sees is sometimes different to what we see. You know, sometimes we think we beat up on ourselves and we say, you know, I'm really struggling with this issue or I can't really believe. And, you know, God looks at it and says, he sees it differently. He sees your faithfulness. He sees your commitment. He sees the way that you look at him. He sees the way that you trust in him, even in the midst of all of the things that aren't working out as they should. Because he looks and he sees that we're putting our faith and our trust in him. So to the answer to that big question, what does God want? Is, as I say, it's to have faith. A faith that simply trusts him like a child. And God wants us to live as his children above all. And that's why we have faith. To close with this scripture from Galatians 3 and verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, by faith, we might receive the promises, the promise of the Spirit. You know, it's through that promised Spirit that we are drawn, we cry, Abba, Father. We are brought into this relationship as God's children, blessed by him and loved by him. That's what God wants. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we confess there are many times when our faith wavers, believing for things, believing for a miracle on certain fronts, and some days we believe and other days we don't. Lord, we vacillate, we, we, we doubt, we struggle. But in the midst of it, Lord, we cling tenaciously to you because we look to you. We look to you for provision, for, for protection, for, for your love, for your grace, for your abundance that can be poured out to us. Father, we desperately want to trust you more. But one thing that we do all confess together today is that we believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus died and will rise again and that we one day will be ascended and be at his right hand with him in heaven. And Father, we cling to that tenaciously. We, we cling to the fact that Jesus' blood is enough, that His atonement was sufficient to buy our redemption, that Lord, we have been made holy. We have been made blameless. We have been brought into relationship that God, we are accepted in Your Son. God, we have faith in You. Faith in You, the bedrock, the ice upon which we stand, which will never fail. 
Lord God, we declare that today. And we invite you to stand right now as we sing together. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. Let this be the confession of your heart today as we sing this. Amen.